This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to Sports Feed. My name is Sharpie and together with Archie Hodgson will be your host for today. I'll be joined by t- today by our regular pundits Luke Power, Robert Morrissey, Ben Fleming, Harry Tanner and Ella Bicknell. We've got a packed show lined up for you today with football, F1, cricket, Olympic prep, MMA, rugby league as well as our regular feature, any other business. Now I'm going to hand over to you to Archie Hodgson to tackle the, fo- the pressing football news. Archie. Thank you very much, Ben. Now, you remember that the UEFA Nations League was established back in 2018 as a way of spicing up the traditional international friendly calendar. And there's no doubt that it has added an element of intrigue to what had become a rather stale international break. And this was certainly the case over the past week as the the third round of of Nations League fixtures produced some cracking games and stand-up performances. Luke, there's Probably no better place to start than England's 2-1 victory on Sunday evening over number one ranked Belgium. Just how big a statement was this victory? And do you think it's a taste of, of what's to come for this crop of English players? Well, I hope it's not a taste of what's to come for this crop of English players because I think it rather papered over the crack because I don't think it was as impressive a victory as people make out with Belgium being the, the best team in the world. I mean, the telling thing for me is that we, we both played the same system this 3-4-2-1. Uh, and yet Belgium, for the majority of the game, looked so much more dominant than us. In, in midfield, Witzel, I think, was really running the show alongside Tielemans for them. And so I'm actually quite worried. I think Southgate has a bit of a selection headache because I think in both games, we had some very good performances. Um, I, I don't think Pickford is the keeper for England going forward, especially with the competition from Henderson and Pope. But I, I also think in the game against Belgium, we had some severe defensive issues and we're very, very lucky to escape only conceding the one goal. Robert, do you agree with that assessment or do you think Luke's being a, a tad harsh there? No, no, I think, I think I would agree. I don't think it was a particularly, as you said, it wasn't a particularly dominant performance. It was, you know, it was, it was difficult. I think we got, a, you know, uh, we got away with a few things. I think the penalty um, shout, uh, for us was soft the Henderson one I think it could easily not be given uh, and I just think yeah it was it was interesting by Southgate you know we ended up playing three right backs in the game uh, you know and I just think that that led to um, an interesting game where it was yeah it just wasn't the kind of performance you want and I think Rashford got some plaudits for it but I don't think it was particularly great in the game either I think it was yeah it wasn't particularly brilliant Uh, so, Luke, as well as the, the competitive edge added to the internationals as a result of the Nations League, it also provides a further pathway to the Euros. And both Scotland and Northern Ireland are now just one game away from joining England and Wales next summer after winning their respective semi-finals against Israel and, and Bosnia. What did you make of, of those results? Well, it's very good for Scotland to storm to the top of their group. Uh, winning 1-0 against Slovakia who are a very good team so as you say I do think it provides a really good pathway especially I mean for instance with the World Cup we, we get 13 teams from Europe into the World Cup and whilst that's a lot it does leave sides like Scotland out a lot of the time so the Euros are generally the only real competition where you are going to get the likes of Northern Ireland the likes of Scotland perhaps in those competitions consistently so I think the, the Nations League yeah, is a huge incentive for those players, especially maybe the players on the fringes of the teams to really step up and really show that they are worth something to try and win a place in the competition. Because the, the Euros is a huge thing to be a part of. But I also think we saw in 2018, even being in the final stages of the Nations League is something to be really excited about. And we were all uh, very disappointed when England crashed out themselves. So I, I think it's a really good innovation to bring the Nations League in. And I mean, personally, I'm happy with watching it as it progresses. And Robert, if we if we look at Scotland um, just for a minute, they have a, a one-off game next month against Serbia to, to qualify for the Euros next summer. And if they get through that, they would end up in England's group at, at the Euros. Just how exciting a prospect is that? I mean, it's it's what you want, isn't it? Uh, it's the closest thing, really, as you get to, to true, uh, real derbies in international football. It's, it's amazing. You know, uh, I think, obviously, for a while now, Scotland have lagged behind and they've had some great generations but never really managed to, to do much with that. And 
with this team clicking, uh, I think it's I think it's brilliant. It's, it's exactly what you want. You know, I think there won't be anything more exciting than if you somehow got all the home nations in the same group. You know, uh, but just having one Scotland and England, you know, that that'll be a it'll it'll be some great viewing. And uh, yeah, I mean, England should obviously if they're in the same group, England should probably win. But it'll, uh, the plucky Scots are always up for a fight. Yeah, that, that would definitely be one to, to look out for. Now we're going to to turn our attention to the new the big news really this week, and that is Project Big Picture, which um, amongst other things would see the Premier League cut from from twenty to eighteen clubs, and would also see um, significant funding made available to to the member clubs of the the EFL. Uh, Luke, a lot of these changes seem positive, but is it is is that the entire picture, or the the some elements that that you're not too sure about? I mean, sure, we'll go over the positives. So the EFL are going to receive two hundred and fifty million pounds up front. They're also going to receive twenty five percent of the annual revenue from the Premier League, which is up from four percent. This is a huge increase. Um, so on paper, especially with COVID nineteen, you're thinking this is looking pretty good. But I do think there's a slight contradiction. When you look at the recent salary caps that have been brought in in League One and League Two, so where's all this new money going to go? Apart from maybe paying the guy who runs the the sandwich bar at half time a little bit more, um, undoubtedly we're going to see sides like Berry, Macclesfield, Bolton. Those situations probably aren't going to occur if we bring in this extra money for them. But I think you also have to question: Couldn't this increase the gap? from the conference to League Two? Couldn't we be separating the EFL even further if they're getting all of these payments? I see Rob is not along there. Would you like to come in, Rob? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, it's not, it's not a thought that I particularly thought about, but definitely it's, it's a concern with that, you know, uh, with even, obviously, conference teams will still be able to come up, but how will they be able to compete having not received, you know, that that money? And uh, I think it's, it's needed. You know, there's definitely needs to be more protection, like you were saying, for... Uh, things like places like Macclesfield and Deberry and Bolton, there, there needs to be some form of protection to stop things like that happening. But is this really the solution? You know, especially not even mentioned how it's potentially a, the quote has been, you know, backdoor deals. Uh, is this just a way of the top, the top teams in the Prem trying to just secure their power with the league? You know, is that, that really what they're doing? It might be cynical, but uh, definitely looks, you have to think what, what benefits them in this. And that's probably what it is. It's gaining, gaining that more power. And Luke, as, as Robert alluded to, that the, is, um, there are potentially fears that the, the established Premier League clubs are trying to grab power here. Just how likely do you think it is that these that, that this plan will come into effect? I mean, the Premier League have voiced their uh, vehement concern over this. So I would hope that club C-Sense, I know Man United and Liverpool are talking with the AFL, I know Rick Parry, the chair of the EFL has said, yes, we should go ahead with this. But I, I mean, it's very difficult because usually you have 14 Premier League teams have to vote in favour of something. Now we just have the nine longest serving clubs in the Premier League and only six of them. That's two thirds. I mean, if Liverpool and Man United are already talking, we only need four more teams to go along with this. So I, I think it really is something to be concerned about. However, a lot of people wouldn't be concerned you know, at the end of the day, we'll be seeing that the women's league break away independently, which will give more autonomy to them. Um, huge payments going into the EFL, which is going to help a lot of clubs. So maybe that's just me being a bit negative about it and wanting to be more traditional. I, I, I just don't see the need to combine these two issues of reducing the size of the Premier League to 18 clubs and then also giving clubs a lower download of money. I think we could just give the clubs a lot of money and not restructure anything. Thank you very much to both of you for your thoughts. We're now going to move on to cricket and the Indian Premier League in particular. And I'm delighted to be joined by our pundits, Ben Fleming and Harry Tanner. Since its inception in 2008, the Indian Premier League has grown a reputation as probably the most exciting 2020 cricket competition in the world, attracting the game's biggest stars on mouth-watering salaries and played out in front of packed stadia throughout the subcontinent. Unfortunately, this year's edition has a decidedly different feel to it after the organisers were forced to relocate the tournament to the UAE in light of India's coronavirus lockdown. 
Now, Ben, obviously one of the IPL's major selling points is the electric atmosphere generated in the stadiums. So has this year's tournament, which is of course being played behind closed doors, has it lost some of its appeal? Um, I don't think so necessarily. Uh, obviously, um, you know, the fans and the atmosphere is one of the one of the key selling points. Um, I know that they're masking in sort of fake fan noise, which isn't quite the same, but you've still got um, all the same, all the same big players there. You know, I think Ben, Ben, Ben Stokes came over a couple of days ago. You've got all the best players in the world playing. Um, the only other thing I would say is it's not so much the fans, but um, the different pitches they're playing on. I know um, Chennai Super Kings, for example, their pitch, their home pitch is a very spin heavy pitch. And a lot of their squad has a lot of spinners in there. Um, and so they've, they've come to the UAE with, with slightly different pitches and they've struggled. So perhaps um, the fans isn't the big difference, but the, uh, the different pitches, which has been perhaps the biggest shake-up for the teams. And Harry, as, as Ben mentioned there, the, the Chennai Super Kings, who've traditionally been one of the, the strongest sides in the competition, they've really struggled this year. We're, we're currently at about the halfway stage and the teams are, are pretty finely poised. Do you see at this stage any... Clear favourites, or is it still too early to call? I don't think it's too early to call. I think Mumbai Indians look like the dominant force this year. You know, they've been winning time and again in the IPL. I think they've won two of the last four, I think it is. Um, yeah, they look dominant with the ball. Probably the, the, the best seam attack with Bumrah, Pattinson, and, uh, and Bolt as well. A very potent seam attack, I think, with the bat as well. Kyron Pollard has come into his own. I think over the last few seasons, he's, uh, he's struggled a little bit, but he had a very good CPL a few months ago. And I think he's carried that form and confidence with him into the next tournament. So I think their win over Delhi this weekend, you know, the top of the table clash has probably cemented them as the favourites. But uh, I think Delhi, yeah, they're certainly up there as well. KKR. And I think from there, that's probably where the competition starts. I think there'll be probably a bit of movement into who will qualify for those playoff places. I think Sunrisers are looking quite strong, actually. Um, you know, they've won three of the last five games with Johnny Bairstow and David Warner at the top of the, uh, top of the batting lineup. But uh, for sure, I think Mumbai are my, uh, are my favourites to begin with. Would you agree with that assessment, Ben? Yeah, I think, um, I think Mumbai as a, as a unit are um, very strong. The only other team I'd, uh, I'd point to would be RCB. Um, they're playing as we speak. Um, they've got Coley. Uh, Finch, uh, A.B. De Villiers, who's put in a great knock. They've got Washington Sundar, who's been really good with the spin up front. I think if Coley, um, De Villiers, who hit a great knock literally just, 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 just before we started, if they can get all of their, um, their, their pieces together and firing, I think, I think they could be one to watch out for as well. Now, Harry, Ben mentioned earlier that uh, Ben Stokes made his, re- his uh, much-anticipated return to action um, a few days ago for the, the Rajasthan Royals. And I think that was his, his first cricket match since the, the Pakistan series um, back, back in August. Just how good was it to see him back? Because obviously it's been quite a, a traumatic time really for him in terms of his, his personal life off the field. Yeah, no, it's brilliant to see Ben Stokes back on the field. I think he is, you know, the, probably the number one player in all of cricket at the moment. I think just what he can do with bat and ball you know, he's a, he's a real game changer in the field as well. Um, and, you know, he has such a presence about him. I think any game, you know, the level is always raised when Ben Stokes is involved. As you said, you know, he's had a tough time with family, you know, family issues. Recently, he flew back to New Zealand, as you said, after the, uh, the Pakistan series. So I think um, exactly, you know, all, you know, for the games to be great, you need the best players playing. And I think having Ben Stokes is, um, yeah, is, is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, for, as for him as a person as well, I think it's important and it's great to see him back on the field and, and playing cricket again, 100%. And from an English perspective, there is plenty of interest with 10 players involved in, in this year's edition. Would you say, Ben, that, that Joffre Archer has been the, the pick of the bunch so far? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty difficult to, uh, to look past him. Um, his team, uh, Rajasthan Royals, you know, they've been, they've been pretty, pretty misfiring. They've got a, they've got a lot of um, high-quality players, um, but really struggled to sort of find the right order, especially their batting lineup. Um, but him with the ball, he's certainly looked uh, great. I think he's got the, the best economy rate of any of the fast bowlers. Um, so he's really, he's really shone. I think uh, Johnny, Johnny Berta as well for the uh, Sunrisers Sunrise Hyderabad um, looked good as well. Hit a, 
99 uh, a, couple, a couple of matches ago. Been, been a bit inconsistent. He's either got loads of runs or not many at all. But I think uh, Archer's definitely been the pick of the bunch from the uh, English perspective. Thank you very much to both of you for your thoughts. Now I'm going to pass back to Sharpie for the NFL segment of the show. Thank you, Archie. Now we're going to move on to a proper sport, uh, the NFL, with Harry Tanner. Um, Harry, we are, we've, we're, we've had a bit of an up and down season with COVID interruptions, um, players being injured. Who's been your pick of the bunch so far in terms of teams? I think without a doubt, I'd say the Seattle Seahawks. I think uh, they, the way they've started the season has just been unbelievable. I think, uh, you know, before the season started, you know, we, we, there were rumours on Twitter about where Pete Carroll finally let Russ cook, I think the hashtag was. And, uh, you know, he's unleashed Russell Wilson. I think they've just offensively, as they've been outstanding, um, you know, they're 5-0. and They had a big win last night, um, close game. But uh, they seem like the most impressive team to me. Um, interestingly, you know, I think probably going into it, going into this weekend, I think the Chiefs were certainly up there. But, you know, the upset by the Raiders, I think, has slightly, uh, you know, thrown the, uh, their sort of dominance into doubt. Um, but I think Seahawks, probably the Packers as well, they, they're playing. They're, they're, they have a bye week this week. But again, they're one of my uh, top teams as well, 100%. Yeah, I mean, looking at the Seattle Seahawks, they've scored the most points, 169 out of anyone. They're, Russell Wilson's absolutely on fire. Definitely my MVP pick for the first, first five weeks and probably will end up being the MVP for the rest for the regular season then moving on to now speaking in that light uh, moving on to players which players sort of shone for you which have been the players that have sort of stood out for you other than obviously the obvious such as Russell Wilson yes he said you know obviously Russell Wilson I think I'd agree MVP vote as well but moving on from him I think Josh Allen has really impressed me I think the strides he's made over the uh, you know over the offseason he looks like a completely different quarterback over in Buffalo I think uh you know, the offensive coordinator and the quarterback coach, they've worked with him um, extensively. And I think he just looks completely different. He is dominating games now. He looks very comfortable. Um, I think he's on pace for something ridiculous, like 55 touchdowns this season. Um, you know, and for context, I think only two players have ever done that in the history of the NFL. So, um, yeah, he's looking a fantastic offensive player. I think maybe from the defensive perspective, I'd say Miles Garrett has been excellent for the Cleveland Browns. You know, for all of the troubles he had last season with the suspension, you know, that, ridiculous fight against uh, the Steelers I think you know he's come back with a renewed sense of purpose and concentration and he's been you know running amok really in the uh, you know in the AFC um, I think he's on five or five or six sacks already this season so I think he's probably the most most dominant defensive player in the league at the moment yeah I mean speaking about Josh Allen I mean he he's, he's what he's done in my opinion is he's reduced his, his, his uh, average throw from 11 yards to eight yards so he's Whilst he's managed to be throwing it as far, he's a far more accurate this year. And he's improving massively. Yeah. Um, we're going to go to the bottom of the table, the bottom of the bottom, scrape the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and look at some of the worst teams that have been playing this year. Let's start with the uh, New York Giants. What's been their issue? What's been their big sort of problem with them? They just can't really score any points. I think that's the issue. You know, I mean. Last night they did all right against uh, Dallas. They ran them close, but traditionally I think this season their their problem lies probably at quarterback. You know Dan Jones they brought in, uh, you know the other, uh, last the season before last, and uh, I think he's just really struggled to get the ball moving. They've struggled with injuries. Obviously their star player Saquon Barkley's been out, but they just can't really move the chains. They're struggling to score points. Um, you know rookie head coach Joe Judge. Um, I think it might be a bit of an experience there as well, but uh, you know they're looking comfortably one of the worst teams, the Giants. Yeah. And speaking of injured players, Dak Prescott walked off last night with a horrific, looked like a horrific ankle injury. I mean, his leg looked like, his leg, his ankle was in a place where he really shouldn't be at all. Um, <laughs> Perpendicular almost. Well, exactly. How big an effect will this have on the Dallas Cowboys? Because no disrespect to their backup quarterback. He's not exactly experienced enough to really be filling the position of probably the marquee quarterback in the league. And a lot of people have Dallas pitched to be one of the Super Bowl contenders. Do you see them as that? Absolutely not. I think, I think, you know, what they've been good at this season is scoring points. Yeah, offensively, I think they've got one of the best in the league. Dak Prescott has been throwing for 400, 500 yards a game. Um, I don't think Andy Dalton has that in him, really. I think he's sort of, he'll be a solid backup. But as you said, he's not going to set, uh, set the world on fire when playing, you know, for America's team. But, uh, 
know, defensively, I think they've really struggled. They've, you know, I think they've conceded the most points of any team in the league. No, they're they're definitely not a Super Bowl contender in my book. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely spot on with the defense. I mean, 180 points against them. I mean, that's just ridiculous after after five games. Now we're going to move on to a sad state of affairs for me. Um, the Atlanta Falcons, my team, has finally, finally, maybe sad, but in my opinion, is good news. I've finally mm. sacked Dan Quinn, their head coach. What was the issue? I mean, offensively, the Falcons have been good this season, but their de- defense has just been—it's been reminiscent of the of the Super Bowl Fifty One, where they blew the lead against the New York Patriot, New England Patriots. Sorry, I mean, what is, is the defense been the issue? Has that been the main issue regarding them? I think, well, I think it probably has been that really, and it's been a sad decline for the Falcons. Really, as you said, Super Bowl Fifty One, twenty-eight to three up. So I don't want to bring that up and. You know, cause any PTSD there, Sharpie. But uh, it's uh, no. I think you know. Ever since that moment, I think it's just been downhill from there for the Falcons. I think uh, they've not quite recovered from that. And I think it is. I think yeah, as you said, the offense has been fine. Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley. You know, there's plenty of talent there. But I think it's just been the defense has let them down. Really, I think uh, you know um, Dan Quinn you know, prides himself on being a defensive coach. I think he masterminded you know the, the infamous Legion of Boom over in Seattle when they won. Uh, on one of their uh, Super Bowls, he was a defensive coordinator there. He was brought in to, you know, strengthen the defense. And I mean, they've just been dreadful really this season. It's not really for lack of talent either. There are a few, you know, decent names there. I think AJ Torrell's over there in Atlanta. And I think they've just completely fallen apart. And it might have just been a confidence thing from that 28 to 3 lead. Yeah, I mean, they really have deteriorated massively. I mean, if you look at, they blew, they blew two massively leads this year against the Chicago Bears who are not are a mid-table side so to speak yeah. and uh, the Cowboys where they, where they, which was the biggest lead they've blown since Super Bowl 51 now going on to talk about the Lance Falcons do we think that if they brought in I don't know someone who was reminiscent of Carl Shanahan who was their offensive coordinator in 2016 yeah. they could really succeed because they should really I'm not saying forget about the defence, but if you look at their points scored so far this season, they've scored 16 against the Panthers, six, 16 against the Packers, 26 against the Falcons, 25 against the Falcons, and 39 against the yeah. Dallas Cowboys. When they were um, uh, Super Bowl contenders, they were averaging 30 points a game. Should they really be focusing on their offence and just say, OK, we know our defence is going to be great, we can improve it with the draft, let's bring in someone who's offensively minded? I think, yeah, I think a dynamic offense must be the way to go for them, really. If you look at, you know, we were talking about how good the Seahawks have been earlier. You know, their defense, they've almost thrown that out the window. And that's, you know, Pete Carroll, one of the most famous defensive coaches in the league. He's just gone, you know what? I've got some talented offensive personnel and we're just going to go that way. Um, and, you know, that's done them fine. They're 5-0 to start the season. Um, I think, as, we, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones, even, you know, Todd Gurley, there's a lot of talent on that team, along with Matt Ryan. And I think, as you said, if they can get someone dynamic in, I think they, you know, there is hope for them yet. Okay. Thank you, Harry, for speaking to me about the NFL and, again, a proper sport. I'm now going to be joined by Luke Power to discuss the F1. Luke, how are you doing? Very good, Ben. How are you? Yeah, very good indeed. Um, we, before we get on to the, um, the big significance of Lewis Hamilton's win this, win this week, can you give us a brief recap for our listeners who did not watch the race, uh, uh, did not watch the Eiffel Grand Prix? Mm-hmm. Well, for anyone who hasn't seen the headlines, um, Hamilton won in the end um, with Verstappen coming second. And Danny Ricciardo, actually, for Renault, picking, picking up his first podium with the team, his first since 2018. What I would also say for 11 races into the season, we had five people not complete the race, including Valtteri Bottas, who before the, the race could have said he was still in with a chance of potentially somehow winning the Formula One season. Well, he was out after a few laps. Lando Norris as well, again, a DNF, he, he would be really disappointed with that. So it, it was a race that was very, very happy for some people, but I think quite a few teams will be disappointed with the way that they crashed out so early in the race. How big a win is this for Lewis Hamilton in terms of his year's Drivers' Championship? Absolutely massive. Is it 69 points ahead now? Or, or 70, something like that, which is, I think, a gap that is unpluggable I don't think anybody's going to catch him unless Hamilton has some defects with his car in every single race for the rest of the season 
I think he's going to be storming to uh, his seventh title in F1, which will match Schumacher's record for titles. He matched Schumacher's record for wins this weekend, 91 wins. And, you know, we saw that very poignant scene at the end where Mick Schumacher and Mike Olson handed him one of his old helmets, which was a really special moment for Lewis. And, uh, yeah, he's truly uh, contending for number one driver ever, in my opinion. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about you. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to ask, going on to that topic, where does he rank in terms of greatest F1 drivers of all time? Now, for me, Ayrton Senna is the best of all time. I think that he would have won numerous world championships. He, they recently did a survey, uh, some engineers and scientists did a survey of who was the quickest driver across one lap. And Ayrton Senna came out on top with Michael Schumacher second and Hamilton third. Do we think that um, Hamilton is the best? Or do we think that perhaps Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher still pips him to the post yeah I mean it's hard you mentioned that survey I do agree but it also had Jarno Trulli in about 8th or ninth, which I thought was a bit dubious um, I was like how is he ahead of Vettel but yeah I mean Ayrton Senna of course if he'd have managed to make, make you know the way through his entire career could have eclipsed the two of them um, I think it's really hard because I never watched the likes of Senna race I didn't really watch a lot of Schumacher's career so personally, I can't say. All I can see is Hamilton every week. I mean, he's won seven of the 11 races this year. Absolutely bossing it. He's done it at two teams as well. Was really successful at McLaren. But then again, Schumacher as well was really successful at two teams. I just think it's really difficult to compare across eras. If we're looking back to the 80s through the 90s um, to nowadays, you know, with all the regulation changes that hamper the teams every season. So I think I'd be disrespecting either of the three of them if I said that one was better than the others. So I'm going to sit on the fence as always, Ben. (laughs) Can you pick out a driver who came from under the radar and impressed you during the race? During the race? I mean, Grosjean finished ninth, which was very impressive. Also, Giovinazzi finished uh, tenth, which was very impressive. I I think what we see with Giovinazzi every single week, apart from this week where he finally got into Q2, is that he comes about 18th in qualifying. And then after about one lap, he's overtaken five people and he's immense at, you know, that really risky driving, somehow squeezing through gaps that you didn't think would be there to be squeezed through and overtaking people. So I think, especially in the the context that Giovinazzi and Grosjean have not secured their seats for next season, they will be wiping a bit of sweat off their forehead now and hoping that, you know, if they can climb the rankings ahead of the bottom six a bit more, that maybe they could secure seats for next season. Because, of course, I'm sure you'll have an opinion on Hulkenberg and Perez not having seats at the moment next season, but absolutely chomping at the bit. Yeah, I mean, my pit, my driver of the day was Hulkenberg, purely on the basis that he got a call up on Saturday morning, told that he is driving in for Lance Stroll, and um, finished eighth overall. So that's a, I think that's a great performance from him. Um, talking about the bigger picture, we heard this week that Honda will stop supplying engines to anyone at the end of 2020, 2020, 2022 um, after the uh, hi- hybrid era ends. This will massively affect Red Bull. Where, do you, where can you see them getting an engine from? Because Mercedes have already ruled out supplying them. Would they want to build their own? I don't know. I mean, you wouldn't want to go for the Ferrari engine the way that's shaping up at the moment. So... I'm not very sure, Ben, to be honest. I mean, Honda have been such a a big part of the sport for them. And Red Bull are a very rigid team that like to do things their own way. I mean, with their driver recruitment, they're absolutely staunchly devoted to recruiting from their own ranks. So maybe you're a better place to answer for me, but I think it's a massive issue for Red Bull because they don't like to change very much about what they do. So who knows? It's all up in the air at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much up in the air. I mean, I can see them very much re- rebranding the uh, Honda mm. engines that they get given and uh, rebranding them as uh, Red Bull engines. Mm. Thank you, Luke, for discussing F1 with me. I now pass over to Archie Hodgson to discuss since talk about Ella's Olympics. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben. Now, Ella, it's been quite a long time now since the, the last show, actually. So I was wondering if you could you know, just fill us in on any latest uh, news on the Tokyo Olympics. 
Well, I'm glad to say that the IOC, so that's the International Olympic Committee, they've said that the Games are going to go ahead next year with or without COVID, although it looks like COVID will still be around by then. So Japan's Olympic minister, Saiko Hashimoto, has said that the Olympics have to be held at any cost. And that makes sense. Japan has spent so much on transportation facilities, reducing the language barrier across the city, um, and not to mention that Olympic stadium that they've been building since 2016, costing over 150 billion yen. So to my delight, or else I'd have a lot less to talk about on this show, uh, the Tokyo Olympics will be going ahead. And every sports feed, I'll give an update on any more news about the Olympics organization or the athletes that will be participating in it. So I'm glad to say that I'm not without a job. <laughs> um, but one thing I can report on is that the Tokyo Marathon is going to be rescheduled for October 2021, as opposed to being held in that August slot we usually expect Olympic events to be held in. It's strange to think that there's going to be an Olympic event after the closing ceremony, sort of, sort of makes it a bit ironic, but um, I'm not complaining. As long as there's going to be some Olympic events, I'm all for it. That is fantastic news that, that the Olympics are definitely going to go ahead. And another piece of exciting news is that skateboarding will be making its Olympic debut in, in Tokyo. C can you tell us a little bit about how the sport is being run and also how the news of its addition to the Olympics has been received. Oh, brilliant. Um, so yeah, great that skateboarding is being added onto the Olympic calendar alongside surfing. So the skateboarding event is going to be split into two disciplines, park and street. So the comp park competition, it comprises of two rounds. There's preliminaries and there's the final. So in the prelims, there will be 20 skaters and they'll compete in four heats of five skaters. So the first eight skaters from the combined ranking of all of these heats, they're going to be the ones that progress to the final. And in each round, the skaters' best three 45-second runs count towards their final score. And their scores are going to be between zero and 100. And then the highest and lowest scores for each run are dropped. And the remaining three scores are averaged to two decimal places. And that results in their final score and who gets to go to finals and who uh, will win the gold medal and then so that's the park competition when it comes to the street competition that again is still got prelims and it's got a final so in the prelims there'll be 20 skaters they'll compete in four heats of five skaters just like the park competition and again the first eight skaters from the combined rankings will um, compete into the final now this is where it differs so in each round the skaters will still have 45 second runs, but only two of them, and they'll have to perform five tricks. And then the judges, there'll be five of those judges, they're gonna score the skaters between zero and 10 points. Again, the highest and lowest scores for each run or each trick are dropped, and the remaining three scores are averaged to just one decimal place this time, and that's their final score. And then that happens again in the final round to determine who wins the gold, the silver, and the bronze. So when so that's how it's working. But initially, people didn't react very well to when skateboarding was announced to be included into the Olympic events. Actually, a lot of people's ears pricked up and not kind of in a good way, more in a chalk on a blackboard kind of way. And that's probably because some sporting prudes out there might look at skateboarding less as a sport and more like a teenage hobby, one that requires less discipline than the traditional sports that you see at the Olympics. Dare I say rowing as my as my sport, um, <laughs> just being biased. However, I think the Olympic Committee over the years has acknowledged that actually skateboarding requires a lot of skill and a lot of discipline to really excel at it. And it's hugely popular these days. And that's why they've included it. Um, What's your personal view, Ella? Do you, do you think it's, it's worthy of a place in the Olympics? I just want to see all kinds of sport at the Olympics. <laughs> But um, no, that saying, no, I think there's certainly some skill in it. I've had a go on a skateboard and I should never go again. I almost broke my ankle. So I'm definitely some skill there. No, I'd equate it to almost gymnastics or snowboarding. Snowboard freestyle is probably the best thing to compare it to um, in terms of skill. So I definitely think it's worth a place as well as surfing. I give them that a go and I'm not very good at it too. Um, <laughs> 
so its popularity is now only just going to grow thanks to it being held at the Olympics. So I expect many people, especially children and especially women, will be inspired to give skateboarding a go. And governments are going to follow this popularity up by building skate parks around the country and that's across the world. In fact, did you know that three times more women are taking up skateboarding now as opposed to men? And that's probably due to it being announced that it's going to be part of the Olympic calendar. Uh, so one interesting athlete um, to note is Annie Guglia, who is uh, for Canada and she's hoping to win a Olympic medal in the sport. She picked up the skateboard again when it was announced it's going to be including the Olympics. She took more than a decade break from skateboarding when she realised that professional skateboarders would get far more money and public attention if they were male. And um, the fact that it's included in the, the Olympics means that she could take it professionally and she could be paid for it. So I think it's a really, it's such a great piece of news that um, it's making the sport more inclusive. And it's stories like this why I love the Olympics. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but I, yeah, I think skateboarding and surfing will be two really exciting additions to the Olympics. And I look forward to, to hearing more about any any more news uh, in, in the coming weeks. But this term, every week, Ella will be profiling a well-known Olympian and rating their chances of gold in, in Tokyo. Now, you're starting this week with a, a pretty huge name, none other yeah, than, than four-time Olympic gold medalist, Samo Farah. Obviously, Farah was one of the poster boys of London 2012. But Ella, at 37 years of age, does he still have what it takes to win gold in Tokyo? Well... It's amazing to look back four years ago and think people had doubts on his ability to win gold at 2016. And he did it. Double-double uh, Olympic cha champion, Sermo Farah. So it's just a question whether or not he can keep that going and get some more golds in 2021. Just to think nine years after his uh, 2012 win. That's a long amount of time. But... Mo Farah is really optimistic about it, but then again, isn't he optimistic about everything? So Mo thinks that his chances at the Olympics is um, much better now that the event's been postponed. So to quote, um, he said, it is probably, in my honest opinion, not a bad thing for me because it gives you a bit more time to train for it, to do more races, because I would have gone from one marathon and then the following year straight to the track. So he's really, really keen on his chances. Possible competition. I think Kaprupto is the leader of the, a talented crop of Kenyan runners that could beat Mo next year. He will just be 21 when the 2021 Olympics begin. Um, and he's already a seasoned opponent who's got good chances. For example, um, he's the under 20 champion, world champion for the 10,000 meters. And he got that back in 2018. And he secured the 10K road race record. Um, and that was earlier this year. So he's got really good chances as well as Mo. Anyway, Mo's a ray of positivity. And I'm sure that optimism is going to drive him to, well, a, at least a medal might not be the gold in 2021. Also, a final fun fact about Mo. I was looking on his Instagram bio and he cites one of his proudest achievements, apart from winning four gold medals. You'd think that would be right up there. But second to that was the fact that he was the first person to beat the cube. Do you remember that game show, guys? <laughs> I, rem I remember that. that. That was very impressive, wasn't it? But yeah, that's it on Mo. I think he's, he likes his chances, so I think we better believe him. Thank you very much for that update and I'm sure we're, we're all looking forward to tuning in next summer to, to see how he gets on. Now we're sticking with, with me and, and Eleanor but we're moving on to tennis and in particular the, the French Open. Now tennis fans will be used to watching the French Open in, in late May, usually a month or so before Wimbledon but this year's edition was put back to the end of September as a result of the pandemic. And of course, this was far from a typical French Open with several high-profile players, including defending women's singles champion Ashley Barty, uh, opting not to participate as a result of COVID, while the cold Parisian weather in itself provided a further challenge. But nevertheless, the tournament proved a great success and announced the arrival of Polish teenager Igor Sviatek to the international stage. Prior to the tournament, she hadn't actually progressed further than the fourth round at a major. 
But the 19-year-old swept aside all challenges in her path to clinch her maiden Grand Slam title in, emph- in emphatic style, not losing a, a single set on her way to victory. What did you make of this breakthrough performance, Ella? Oh, I thought it was brilliant. So the ball, the ball travels so fast on clay and Igor Svartek's athleticism to keep up with it was just fantastic. She didn't seem nervous at all. And I think that really helped her win the match in less than 90 minutes as well. Uh, did you know that the teenager travels with a psychologist? So together they drummed up this positive mental attitude that if she could defeat Halep, which she did successfully three years ago, then um, she could beat anyone. And she proved that at the French Open this year. So in the first set, I loved how she returned this fantastic drop shot by Kenin, who placed it right in the bottom right-hand corner of the right service box. Um, Spatek ran from the baseline and wind and won the point with a lightning reaction backhand drop shot. It was fantastic work. Um, both players used the court brilliantly, placing the ball wide and really hard to reach. But again, I love Svatek's drop shots. She has a fantastic ability to just kill the ball. It's traveling super, super fast and she'll just stop it dead, drop it just over the net and clutch the point. So in the second set, she won 15 points in a row and that is just fantastic. Um, And coming into the French Open, people didn't really rate her chances. Like you might not, but you weren't the only one that could be in disbelief when she was the winner. Um, when she won with a final forehand, Svatek put her hand over her mouth in total shock. Uh, she's the lowest ranked woman to ever win the French Open. She's only 19 years old. It's her first Grand Slam. So she's definitely got a bright future ahead of her. I think really great play. Yeah, that, that was an incredible performance. And as you said, one that, that no one really would have predicted before the tournament. And that's the brilliant thing about these Grand Slams is that they can up completely uh, unexpected results but on the men's side of the draw it was a case of um, a very familiar story uh, in that Rafael Nadal won his 13th Roland Garros title bringing up his career total to to 20 grand slams level with Roger Federer now just how incredible is that achievement Ella? Yeah what else do you expect from the king of clay? Um, Jonathan Jericho from BBC Sport called it an almost flawless performance and certainly one of Nadal's finest French Open titles. He's won, he's won 13 French Open titles, so it means a lot to him. He, he did not drink, drop a single set. He barely dropped any unforced errors. Uh, the only thing he did drop, however, was this amazing match point winning ace uh, to clinch the title. Um, Rafael's much more modest than I am about him. Um, he's used to playing in much hotter weather. And like you said earlier, the tournament was held in October rather than June. And um, that sort of, that would, you'd think that would serve as a disadvantage, but it didn't show um, in his play. Uh, he said when he won the trophy that a win here in Paris at the French Open means everything to him. Uh, He's won 100 singles matches there and 13 tournaments. Now, of course, Nadal's win sort of reopens, it resurfaces this whole debate of who's going to be the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. I don't think anyone who watches tennis is ever going to stop talking about the rivalry between Djokovic, Federer and Nadal. And like you said, Nadal's got 20 Grand Slam titles, Federer's got 20 and Djokovic is just behind on 17. And uh, some think that this French Open win is going to give a massive psychological boost to Nadal, helping him win more Grand Slams in the future. Although others might think Nadal's ongoing knee problems means that Djokovic has got a few more years left in the game, allowing him to catch up. And we haven't even mentioned Federer, so I don't think this debate is ever going to be settled, to be honest. But if, if you had a prediction, who do you feel will end their career with the most Grand Slams? There's no reason behind it, but Federer, I just love the way he plays, but that's not necessarily how many Grand Slams he'll win. I'm more talking about the quality of his play rather than the quantity. So I don't know. I don't know. I can say. Yeah, I, I think it's a case of just having to appreciate them while they're, they're still playing. I mean, it, it is incredible just how long they've they've dominated the sport. But thank you very much for for your contribution, Ella. And I'm now going to pass back over to Sharpie for the MMA segment of the show. 
Thank you, Archie. I'm going to be joined by Ben Fleming to discuss mixed martial arts and the upcoming, the uh, reviewing the Bellator Paris uh, matches. Now, Ben, the before we talk about the fights, what's the significance of France holding a professional MMA fight for the first time ever, considering it was only made legal in 2016? Yeah, it's um, it's really one of the final frontiers in terms of uh, MMA being legalised. Um, perhaps the biggest before this was. Um, New York, which had a long history of banning MMA, and that that came to an end in 2016 when the when the UFC held their first event there. Um, but yeah, Paris has had a very long history of banning um, MMA, perhaps due to a lack of popularity. The sport is not exactly it's not exactly a hotbed for um, martial arts talent, but they've legalised it, and uh, yeah, Bellator have held their first event here, uh, which is great, and hopefully, um, well, in fact. Um, Scott Coker, the president, said he was going to come back again. They've already got a date for 2021. Um, and I'm sure the, the UFC will also be looking to, uh, to come to the region at some point when sort of coronavirus restrictions allow them to. For all our listeners at home who did not watch Bellator Paris, can you give us a recap of the big fights that took place? Sure. Uh, so from a British perspective, um, Michael Venom Page, uh, perhaps... One of the one of the best prospects uh, in MMA outside of uh, the UFC. He he defeated a Scottish undefeated fighter Ross Houston. Um, not exactly the greatest performance from him. Uh, he he's known for his highlight highlight reel knockouts, um, flying elbows, flying knees. Uh, he actually complained afterward that the uh, the floor in the in, in in the cage was too slippy, which meant he couldn't throw any kicks for fear of falling over. So I'm not quite sure there's any truth to that, but it was a a workmanlike professional performance from him. Um, and then at the top of the card, uh, this was really the, the main reason for it coming to France, uh, Czech Congo, who is very much an elder statesman of the game at 45 years old. I think I, I, I think I can think of many things I'd rather do than get punched in the face for a living at 45. But uh, he, he, he's very much winding down his career. Um, and he unfortunately had a split decision loss against Timothy Johnson, um, it was probably going to be his last fight if he, uh, if he retired. He's not, he's not come out and said uh, whether, whether he'll continue. But yeah, those are, those are sort of the main two um, takeaways from, from the weekend fights. What makes Michael Venom Page so dangerous as an MMA fighter? And where do you rank in terms of MMA fighters from both Bellator and UFC? Um, well, his, his, his height is certainly... Um, one of the main things in terms of uh, if I was to give a comparison to someone similar to Adesanya he's got such a long frame but very skinny so it gives him an advantage he can uh, he can cut weight and get down to a, a division that gives him such a big reach advantage um, his his style um, sort of based in a, a sort of a karate style very unusual um, very unorthodox the uh, the shots he throws um, he, he got a knockout of the year in 2016 against uh, Evangelista Santos, which is essentially a flying knee right to, a, right, right, right to his forehead as he charged in. So he's very unconventional. Um, in terms of ranking him among other, among other welterweights, it's very difficult. Um, in terms of the competition he's faced, um, largely it's not been the best. When he has stepped up, he's faced um, Paul Daly, who is a, a British veteran who's fought a lot in the UFC and in Bellator. He beat him. Um, his biggest his biggest step up was against Douglas Lima last year. Uh, Douglas Lima, who is undoubtedly top five welterweight in the world, um, he lost that fight uh, to a second round uh, knockout. That's the fight he wants to get back. Uh, but I think he needs to be consistently fighting people of higher caliber um, if we're just really get a true gauge on where his where his capabilities lie. What's the prospect of Michael Venom Page getting that rematch? Is that in the offing, or is that not really likely to happen? Uh, well, he uh, he said in his uh, his post match press conference, uh, well, fight fight uh, uh, conference that he wanted to he he wanted that fight back. That that was the fight he wanted to. Uh, Douglas Lima is in fact um, moving up to welterweight to fight Gegard Mousasi, which is uh, which is a really big super fight in, in Bellator. Um, as it, it'll, we'll sort of have to wait and see what happens with that. Douglas Lima is still the world to weight champion despite moving up to middleweight. Um, there is a prospect that um, MVP could uh, could move up to middleweight and fight him there, but I imagine he'll uh, he'll wait for the uh, wait for the results of the uh, Lima Musasi fight in there and go from there. 
Conor McGregor was in the news this week after seemingly confirming a fight with Manny Pacquiao. Is this true? And do we think he stands any chance at all of winning? Or is this just an opportunity for both men to make money? Well, uh, I, I, I think you have to take everything that Conor McGregor says with a, uh, a very large pinch of salt. Um, I think he's, uh, uh, he's, he's announced his retirement from MMA on about four separate occasions and is, and is still seemingly fighting. Um, there is, there is rumours to, to the, uh, and there is, there is validity to the, the Pacquiao, uh, McGregor talks. M- uh, Pacquiao just, just today announced he's, he's signing with Paradigm Sports, which uh, McGregor's got a good relationship with. Uh, I don't know whether the fight will actually happen. McGregor's been talking this week about also having a, having a UFC fight against Dustin Poirier at the end of the year. Um, if the Pacquiao-McGregor fight went ahead, um, yeah, it, it, it would simply be a, a money grab. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it would make as much money as, um, as Mayweather versus McGregor, um, but Pacquiao is certainly far more of a live dog uh, than, than Mayweather was when um, McGregor fought. So, yeah, I mean, there would be no chance of winning for, for McGregor, but it would be a, a nice paycheck, I'm sure. Um, going on now to talk about heavyweight boxing, Deontay Wilder's camp were forced to deny media reports that Fury Wilder 3 would not take place. Now, Fury today stated that the fight was not going to take place and that he would be fighting in December. What do you do? You consider these rumors to be valid, or do you think Tyson Fury is going to fight uh, Deontay Wilder, or do you think it's not going to happen? Uh, again, very, very similar to McGregor. It's uh, it's it's a lot of promotional talk. Um, Bob Arum, he loves he loves to spout 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 a lot. Who knows whether anything actually comes of it? Um, I'm, I'm I'm sure the big problem will be the lack of a crowd. Um, Fury Wilder two was the uh, the biggest gate receipt in Las Vegas boxing history. Um, and of course, it doesn't look like there's going to be uh, any crowd. Well, probably, uh, or certainly, certainly for 2020. Um, so that's that's clearly been a huge uh, stumbling block in terms of getting the fight back on because um, ESPN and BT Sport and all the various TV companies that are involved in the deal uh, will want a crowd because there's there's so much money to be made from it, and and frankly, they need the money to uh, to pay Fury and Wilder. So. Um, I can see the fight not happening next in terms of Fury. I can see Fury taking a a step down, fighting someone in the uh, in the same sort of league as uh, Tom Schwartz and Otto Volin, who we fought before, um, John Wilder. But I don't think I don't think that the the Wilder Fury fight, uh, the trilogy, is certainly dead in the water. Um, there's certainly congrat- um, contractual obligations that's going to be fulfilled with the rematch. So. It's not dead in the water, but perhaps not happening next. Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting. I heard quite a while ago that it was going to be held in Australia on Boxing Day, which would have been a pretty <laughs> good, not a bad Boxing Day experience if you, if you, yeah, if you, better than the uh, normal fat, awkward family dinners. Um, uh, if the fight rematch does take place, do you think that what Fury's got Wilder's number, or can Wilder do a Joshua and win after a defeat? Um, well, it's uh. It's heavyweight boxing, so nothing's nothing's ever um, easy to to say with a hundred percent certainty. And uh, especially when you're talking about Deontay Wilder, who who is perhaps uh, well, certainly pound for pound the uh, the hardest puncher um, in boxing right now, and and probably ranks the hardest one of the top top five uh, hardest punchers in in heavyweight history. So um, to say that it's a it's a dead certainty for for Fury would be naive because at, at any at any one point Fury. Um, Wilder can knock, can knock Fury's lights out. But I think what we saw in that second fight, the way that Fury came at Wilder, the game plan of just shutting down his offense, um, I think, I think you'd, be, you'd, you'd be a fool not to bet on Fury to, to get the job done again. Thank you, uh, Ben, for talking about MMA and boxing. It's great to finally find someone who can actually talk to, about boxing for once. Um, nice. <laughs> and I'm going to pass over to Archie Hodgson to discuss the rugby league and, uh, and uh, NRL. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm delighted to be joined by our new rugby league expert, Robert Morrissey. Uh, and just like boxing, we've, we've not really had the opportunity to talk too much about rugby, rugby league in the past. So for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind just explaining a little bit about the, the NRL as a, a competition, Robert? Uh, yeah, of course. The NRL is the Australian Rugby League and it's been going um, 
for quite a while now, and it's the kind of newest incantation of Australian Rugby League. It's made up of 16 teams um, all across Australia uh, because there's no Perth team involved. But it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting league. And um, weirdly, unlike a lot of other sports, hasn't particularly been hit that badly uh, by COVID. They only got two rounds in before they had to go to lockdown. So um, that was in early March, and they restarted playing in mid-June. And they've done the rest of the 18 regular season game weeks without kind of any stress. It's been it's been quite good. They've uh, managed to isolate well, and there haven't been too many breakouts, so they've done it quite well. But yeah, the, the composition of the league basically works like you have the 16 teams, and the top eight qualify for the, for the finals. And uh, it's, you know, like a normal playoff, however, the top four teams play each other uh first place fourth second place third and the winners of those get a straight bye to go to the semi-finals which is where, uh, close to where we're at at the moment whereas the the bottom four in that group they play each other in an in an eliminating game and the top four games and the winners of those then go on to play in the in, in the quarters and then into the semis so that's where we're at now it was a very interesting regular season Penrith Panthers came top of the pal, which was a real shock to most people. They'd missed out on the final eight uh, the season before by <laughs> just point difference. They'd lost to two teams on point difference. And it was uh, quite shocking that this season they managed to actually go top of the pile. Uh, it's kind of shown how they were real underdogs because other teams who aren't doing as well, uh, like the Brisbane Broncos, are still getting more television coverage than the Panthers are, even though they're top of the pile. They finished on 37 points, five points um, above the Melbourne Storm, who finished second on 32, which for the NRL is quite a large point difference. So they were one real shock for the season. But the other massive shock came in the form of the Brisbane Broncos, who up until since 2010, they hadn't failed to reach the finals until last year. And that was only by a point. They only finished outside by a single point. And they thought that was probably a bad season for Brisbane. Brisbane is one of the most well-known and prestigious rugby league teams. They've only actually won the NRL Premiership twice, but they're consistent finalists. They went on a spout of 18 seasons without missing out on this without missing out on the finals but this year they finished bottom of the pile on six points and nobody's really quite sure why um uh, Darius Boyd is a, a, a been an incredible really player but he's retiring and he ended up being stripped of his captaincy because of how poor the uh, 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 the performances were. Seabold, the coach, he's been sacked, you know, halfway through the season. And it's just been a real shock to, to kind of the NRL landscape. This really famous team in the Brisbane Broncos, you know, if to like look at it from a football's perspective, similar to that of a man capitulated this year. And yeah, it's been an absolutely fascinating regular season. So as as you mentioned, we're now at the real business end of the season with, with the, the playoffs well underway. And yeah, as you said, it was the, the Penrith Panthers who topped the, the table in the regular season, only losing that, the one game in, in their 20 league games. Do you think they can go all the way and actually win the, the grand final? I, th- I, definitely think, I definitely think it's possible. Um, like I said, they've been consistent all season and they've just had some absolutely standout players playing, uh, which was shown actually in the first week of the finals. The, um, the Penrith Panthers took on the Sydney Roosters who are, you know, again, similar to the Brisbane Broncos, really quite a prestigious team. And they beat them by one point, And that's going to do them the world of good for their morale. And the, the standout player was Nathan Cleary. You know, he, um, Cleary even. He was phenomenal. He scored a hat-trick playing at standoff, converted four out of five kicks, and scored the winning drop goal. And I think with performances like that, and the morale that that can bring, uh, I don't see why they can't go out and win it. But they'll have some very stiff competition. But I think uh, they could do it. Now, we've got the semi-finals coming up this weekend, and I'm going to ask you to put your neck on the line and, and make some predictions. We've oh, got dear. Pen, Penrith against South Sydney, and Melbourne uh, Melbourne are taking on Canberra. Out of those two games, who do you think will progress to the grand final? Oh, this is a question I was dreading. It's a really difficult one. Uh, the, you have teams here, the South Sydney Rabbits, they've not had the greatest season, and re- recently they've been embroiled in quite a lot of controversy as well. 
However, it's hard sometimes to look past them. They are just that good. You know, they've got a big, big pack. They're, they're strong up front. And they can, when they really dominate a game, they really do. And that showed in the last two final rounds. You know, they scored 46 points against Newcastle and they scored 38 against Parramatta Eels. They're a really high-scoring team. However, Penrith are good at limiting uh, the points scored against them. So if I was to put my neck out on the line of that game, I would just about edge that I think the Penrith Panthers, just on the form that they're on at the moment and the way that they're playing, I think I'd, I'd give it to them. I think for that semi-final, I think Penrith have it. And then the other, the other game, like you said, is the Melbourne Storm versus the Canberra Raiders. And that's another difficult game. Normally, it'd be quite easy to say that the Melbourne Storm will go through. You know, they've, for the last few years, been there and thereabouts, playing very well, you know. Won a premiership not a few years ago as well. But Canberra have hit form right at the, the time they want to. You know, they just narrowly beat the South, um, the, sorry, not the South Sydney, uh, the Sydney Roosters in the last round. And, you know, everything from their camp was saying it's just given them life, you know, that they can really go on and, and try it. But I, I, and I reckon I'll go for them actually. Yeah, I think they could just about edge the storm with the kind of the morale building in the camp and the way they've been playing. Uh, and England's very own John Bateman having an absolute field day, playing some of the best rugby he's ever played. I, I reckon I'll go with the Canberra Raiders. So yeah, Penrith versus versus Canberra in the final. Well, I'm looking forward to the show next week to to find out how you oh. you on with with the predictions. But no, it's. It's a, a very exciting season. I think just one final thing you, you mentioned there um, about the South Sydney Rabbitohs being embroiled in, in controversy of late. I, I was wondering if, for the benefit of our listeners, if you could just talk a little bit about that um, and the whole situation uh, surrounding Sam Burgess. Yeah, definitely. It's been uh, yeah, it was quite quite a shock to the rugby league world. I think. Um, for pretty much all his playing career, and since then, Sam Burgess has been seen as a as a very as a good guy in rugby league. Uh, you know, a real family man. He's got his, he plays with his brothers. They were all there at South Sydney. Uh, probably about a week ago, I think. Now that he there was accusations of domestic abuse as well as him taking illegal drugs. But the real controversy comes that it's alleged that South Sydney have covered both of those facts up. You know, and if that's true, that is really damaging for the club and really damaging for Sam Burgess, obviously. Um, he's coaching at the moment. He was coaching South Sydney, but he's taken a step back from that since the controversy. And it's kind of had an effect already because even today we saw uh, Michael Jennings, um, who was plays for St. George Illawarra Dragons. He failed a drug test and he was immediately suspended. And Tristan Saylor, who plays for the Parramatta Eels, he was charged with sexual assault and he's immediately been banned from rugby league. So I think already you're seeing that the NRL wants to take a hardline stance on these issues. So we'll just have to see. I think there's a tribunal going on at the moment with the side gearing up to take a tough stance. We're now going to move on to any other business where I will be asking all our pundits what sports job would they like and why? Can everyone join me now? We're going to start with Robert. Now, what sports job would you like and why? What's, what's your dream sports job? I really struggled with this. Um, there's just so much. You know, I was thinking maybe I could be like a mastermind coach, you know, uh, but I don't think I'm, I've quite got that. But I, I think I settled on... Uh, as you can see, I'm slightly obsessed with rugby league, and it's in a really interesting point at the moment. It's kind of a watershed moment for rugby league with expansion and uh, the Toronto Wolfpack and everything. So I thought maybe if I was head of the Super League, I could steer the sport in the direction that I want it to go. I thought maybe that might be a, might be quite an interesting job in sport. Very good choice. Very good choice. Now, Luke, I move on to you. What would be your dream job in sport? What What's your passion, so to speak? Well, of course, it'd have to be a sports feed purple radio pundit, Ben. Um, <laughs> but but if, I, if I shove sports journalism aside, I think one of the things that inspired me from a very young age, um, stadium announcers, I think, have a fascinating and rather limited role. They might only get a couple of minutes before a match, but of course, I come from near Preston. And we, we had a wonderful stadium announcer at Preston North End. And just the passion that they can inject 
into those 90 seconds that they are reading out a few names from a list just struck me as something that was incredibly cool. So even though I'll probably never end up doing it because I'm looking at other careers, if there was one thing, you know, if you could take me out of my bedroom on a Saturday, take, take me out of Morrison's where I need to go shopping or whatever, and put me on Anfield's hallowed turf and let me read out the names of Mosar and Sadio Mane. Thank you, Luke. Now I move on to Harry. What would be your dream sports job? What is your, uh, your, 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 when you go to bed at night, what do you dream of doing? Now, I wouldn't say this was every night, but uh, I think in recent times I've missed, you know, the atmosphere of a live sporting occasion. So I think, uh, you know, the role of controlling the crowd noise at a football game in Premier League these days is probably uh, <clears throat> quite a nice seat to have, you know, watching all the, uh, all the games live. You just have to press a few buttons, you know, and you also get to have a bit of a laugh as well, probably just clicking random ones every now and then, as I'm sure everyone's noticed on the coverage. But uh, maybe on a more serious note, I'd love to be maybe an assistant manager to someone like Jose Mourinho, someone as box office as that, you know, getting inside their mind, seeing how they, uh, they operate. And I'm sure um, it'd be a lot of fun as well. Quite a bit of banter between uh, him and his players, it seems, from the Tottenham documentary. And I now move on to Archie. Now, Archie, what would be your... You you go to bed at night, you fall asleep, and you have those dreams, and you think, "Christ, I wish that was true." What would be your dream sports job? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, it's, it's one that I've I've been having a little think about during the show, and I think for me, I would I would go for being the head of FIFA, just because obviously football is arguably the the biggest sport in the world. So I think you'd you'd have an incredible amount of influence to. Uh, well, it influence to change the game in a, in a positive manner in, in terms of, you know, aspects such as inclusivity. But I think I'd also just be interested to find out the extent of the corruption within FIFA and, uh, and obviously try and sort out the mess a little bit. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your opinions. Now, it's, this is a very difficult decision for me to make this week because they're all actually very good, unusual, unusually so. We've had some awful ones in the past. Um, <laughs> but um, the person I've got to go with has got to be, despite I really like yours one, Robert. I really like yours one, Luke. I really like yours one, Harry. But Archie's one, the fact that you could find out about the corruption in FIFA and finally sort it out, that's, that's what I'd like to find out. And so for that reason, I award you the Any Other Business Prize of the Week. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, thank you very much to, to all of our pundits. We, we've had um, a number of, of new additions to the team today and we're, we're hoping that they'll stick with us throughout the rest of the year. And we hope that you, the listeners, will stick with us too because we've got a very exciting year ahead of us. And obviously at the moment we are still recording this as a podcast remotely, but our hope is to get back into the, the station as soon as possible. Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with you next week. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.